niche. This is London's Free Thinking Comedy Club. That does not mean that we are here to be offensive. It just means that we are here to laugh at comedy, understanding that none of this is meant specifically to be about you, you fucker. It's not about you! Isn't it? Oh, that's very disappointing. I'm so sorry, madam. Hello, this is the Comedy Unleashed podcast. I'm Andrew Doyle. We are backstage and I'm with Simon Evans, who is going to go on and, and headline the night. How are you? Simon? I'm fine. Uh, Andrew, I tell you, you don't want me to destroy the illusion of backstage. It's not really backstage. I was trying to, yeah, you've broken sort of, the spell. We're in a sort of lavatorial and, <laughs> and facilities, uh, like, a, I don't know, like the kind of household cavalry of the cleaning yeah. Brigade, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't think they expected us to be anywhere palatial, no, particularly. No, podcasts don't have a smell dimension, do they? they? No, well, ours know? definitely doesn't, no. <laughs> but I mean, it's better than some green rooms I've been in, let's be honest. Uh, yeah, they're very often, I don't know that people have a, a heightened idea of the glamour <laughs> attached to stand-up comedy no, these days. No, well, they, I think they do, but they're misled. So, lovely to see you. Thank you. I uh, wanted to talk to you a bit about, about politics, because you've uh, recently had a Radio 4 show which is about the free market, am I right? Yes, well, it was about economic theories. We've done five series now of Simon Evans Goes to Market, and the first four series were about the economics of certain things, for instance, gold or the housing market or mm-hmm. death or tobacco or whatever. And then for series five, we decided to go into theory, which was a lot more challenging to make palatable and... I was going to say, how do you make it funny? Yeah, I think, well, I went into the sort of lifestyles. So we did, we did Adam Smith, Karl Marx, and John Maynard Keynes. Mm-hmm. And then for the fourth episode, we tried to look to the future. But for each of those three, we tried to sort of zero in on their biographical details okay. because there was more potential for a bit of human, hopefully finding the disparity between their pronounced ideologies and their actual living circumstances yeah. and so on. And way behave, you know, Marx being the most obvious target yeah. for that kind of thing. But Keynes himself, I mean, extraordinarily rich life. Why nobody has yet produced a sort of 12 part beautifully produced uh, period costume drama about Keynes's life I mean he was the equal of Churchill it, or, or anyone but they, but, be, yeah. they become like symbols don't they, they become like ciphers they sort of yeah, they, don't people know, don't really think of them as people as I don't know they. whether people think about Keynes very much but in his day I mean he was he transcended economics he was a member of the Bloomsbury group he was a you know an extraordinarily uh, successful uh, how can I put this? He, he, his sex life was uh, was was sufficient to get to, to hold a television audience on the rats for twelve hours. His 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 commingling with uh, British continental and American politicians was you know without parallel. Marx, by comparison, was a sort of quite a sort of almost like a sort of d- darkly penciled graphite <coughs> sort of caricature of a curmudgeon, you know, but then became like off a... to the British Library every day. And yeah. it was 50 years after his death that his policies finally caused the, you know, yeah. <laughs> allowed the, the, the reign of benevolence to, to shower down upon humankind. But and someone to... pointed at his flat in Soho the other day as we were yeah. walking through. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. But he, he's been sort of deified, though, hasn't he? Well, in certain... <laughs> He's a very interesting character, Marx, because I think I think it is fair to say he was a tremendously uh, vivid writer. He's quite poetic prose as, as economics goes, and mm-hmm. his early stuff, especially the Communist Manifesto, is certainly worth a read. Capital gets is, is burdened by uh, he gets a bit too swamped in the in the mathematics of it all, which is very often what happens when people try too hard to under. I think I think economics is best treated much more like. Uh, a sort of re- religious revelation, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. you know. You can then try and find a, create the sort of scaffolding the infrastructure afterwards, but but the the initial sort of insights almost have to come to you as if in a dream. Uh, and he had that early on, and then and then he tried to support it with uh, endless expositions as to you know the interplay of, of, of capital and, and and labor and so on, and it all became extraordinarily hard and, and dense. 
But, I mean, he is the most divisive figure in history, I would imagine, really, or certainly of, of the 21st century from, you know, of a figure from history. Well, it's, it's because There's it's nobody something... else outside of religion who divides people as, you know, who think either a, a visionary, you know, we must try and realise Marx's vision, yeah. or we must accept that every single time that has been attempted, the... it has led to calamity. Extraordinarily limited. I'll be honest, I took him to be a suicide note in human form when he first emerged <laughs> into my consciousness due to a strange quirk in the labour rules. But again, you're probably aware of this. Two E's at A level, that's E's, I'm saying. That's not a strange accent. The fifth letter of the alphabet, E. Two E's at A level. Failed to complete his degree course at North London Polytechnic, whatever fucking degree course you can get onto with two E's. There's still too much of a grind for the old cunt. He pulled out and immersed himself in student activism, where he remains to this day, essentially. And it is unconscionable. Grasp of number 10, and we have to, they have to account for that. And see, this, the only reason I learned about this was the 2017 general election, which was the most ham fistedly handled political event of my lifetime, I think. An absolute fucking cattle drive. I mean, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Theresa May, the Maybot, of course, has already been exposed, exposed and talked about her uh, interview after interview, just exposing people for their short. Diane Abbott almost physically dragged off by a shepherd's crook <laughs> halfway through after failing to add up three single digit figures to produce a plausible police budget for following it. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn actually got off fairly easily. The only people to really attack him, funny enough, was BBC's The One Show. I don't know if you ever watched this, some of you may have jobs, but The One Show. <laughs> six o'clock in the evening on BBC One, nice little sort of cosy tea time chat. They normally have Giles Brandreth on, you know, he's, he's like, that's the, and I like Giles, he's usually visited some cathedral, done some brass, that wouldn't surprise me if he's behind that Novichok business, to be honest, Brandreth. <laughs> he's in and out of fucking Salisbury like a rat up a drain pipe, but anyway. <laughs> he'll have it on his shoes, I promise you. <laughs> I... <laughs> occasion the thing was given over to an interview with Jeremy Corbyn and um, and they slipped it in they were chatting away about brass rubbings himself you know he likes his manhole covers and the allotment and all that and then one of them said is it true Jeremy two E's at A level no degree that's an unusual path for a, a would-be prime minister isn't it and he said yes he said that's true I was never very academic he said not looking remotely embarrassed any more than if he'd just been shown a photograph of him having a picnic with Osama bin Laden. <laughs> as if it was like an optional extra. Not very academic. Now listen, you don't need to be academic to make a useful contribution to the world, obviously. But, you know, just for the sake of argument, I think, broadly speaking, in order to be successful academically, you need to be able to consume written materials, absorb arguments and so on, and facts, and understand what is laid out, and attend discussions, tutorials and seminars and so on and possibly contribute to those and possibly synthesise different arguments and understandings of the world and create a new possibility and a way forward and communicate that through the skills of... It's a pretty fucking close correlation for being Prime Minister, as a matter of fact. You nail that in a nice coat for Remembrance Sunday, you're halfway there, really. I'm never very academic. A fucking disgrace, honestly. <laughs> And there's so much heresy within the 
cult. I mean, I, I've, I've seen so many people sort of d- deny that other people are real Marxists, or you know, yeah, the... true Marxism has never been tried, and so on. I mean, that's the the end. Of, but of course, it hasn't. That, I mean, that is a fair point. Is I mean, it? it certainly wasn't in Russia. The thing about Marx, there are a number of things about Marx, but one obvious thing about Marx is he didn't really detail a solution. He spent most of his energies and and focus on analysing the flaws of capitalism and why it would inevitably collapse, mm-hmm. why it would inevitably consume itself. It was like Popol eat itself, but for the 1840s, yeah, yeah. you know. And it was uh, it was accurate in that respect, except he underestimated its ability to mutate in response to every time. So we have had a series of crises. There's no escaping that fact, yeah, yeah. you know, capitalism has led to some tremendous crises, but capitalism itself mutates endlessly in order to adapt to them. Whereas he thought it would lead c- catastrophically to a crisis from which everyone would realise, well, this isn't working, we need to seize the power, seize the means of production, share it out equally, mm-hmm. we have a vanguard, we have a, a brief period of state capitalism, and then, and then you know, everyone gets a, a fair share. And, of course, that's never, ever happened. And as soon as anyone gets any kind of power, they immediately shore themselves up within it. And, you, you can know, understand, the, the, you can understand the idealism, you know, and, yeah. and the... the, the, the the, the wish that that could be true. Well, you certainly can understand it in industrial, you know, uh, the industrial revolution and the aftermath of that in the big cities. I mean, where Engels was walking around, people like point at the, the, the hypocrisy and the irony of Marx being funded by his well-off industrialist mate. But Friedrich Engels, who was also a, a, a very talented prose writer, you know, was genuinely moved, I think, by the working conditions he saw of the mm. factory that he'd inherited. I mean, it's very hard to just throw that all away. Yeah. But it, he was... He was poetic in his descriptions of it, and it is it, it was extraordinarily awful. And it's quite easy nowadays, of course, for modern economists, as they do when they look at Vietnam or, or the Philippines or whatever, to say, well, you know, you, you think they work in sweatshops, but actually, you know, there's actually much better working conditions for them than it used to be in the paddy fields or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of fucking horrendous, really. Yeah, you know, I mean, they yourself. really were... There's a, there is at least a certain kind of natural squalor in a- agricultural poverty yeah. you know the the industrial poverty that 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 gripped britain in the and the industrial revolution was over a hundred years of you know brick dust and 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 smoke yeah, and yeah. I mean, hard, really hard. It varied from one place to another. You know, the mines were probably worse than London. So with that in mind, how do you make this stuff funny? <laughs> you know, how do you make it accessible? That is the big challenge you, I, you were doing. I made Marx, I found Marx the hardest one to make funny. And certainly Tim Harford, who was our resident economist who lends show credibility, he said he found Mark, making Marx even digestible or, or, you know, approachable was very difficult for him. Mm. He is a PPE graduate rather than pure economics, but he finds Marx... Very complicated, and he hasn't, to be honest, found it worth the effort. He, he just went. Well, he, he was. He's been proved wrong time and again. It's too dense, and um, so he's never really got his head around it himself. So, but your target audience for this radio show, I mean, yeah. presumably, is very different from the target audience you do for a comedy club, or not necessarily different audience, but a different a way to approach it. Different tone, yeah. It's, I mean, the six thirty comedy slot on Radio Four, although increasingly, of course, podcast you know versions or uh, sounds app. Mm-hmm. My personal view is that they do actually want something with a bit of substance to it. Yeah. My my personal take is that Radio 4 is occasionally prone to, I don't want to slag any individual off, obviously, but just a little do. bit slightly <laughs> sort of vapid or vacuous, right. just just laughs, you know, just laughing. Yeah. Whereas actually I think people look to Radio 4 for something with a little bit more fibre and grit. Yeah, I, you think know. That's, I think that's right. But I think comedy audiences generally as well. I, yeah. think, I think people do want something with substance. And I agree, they have it, appetite. People were always underestimating people. They yeah. will rise to it. Well, know. they did it with the podcast. I mean, people were saying that people's attention span wasn't good enough for long form, and now the podcast has taken off, and that's, yeah. that's actually what people want. You look at Joe Rogan, like, yeah. you know, I mean, that is like, 
what, over a million hits per episode What is it, now? like two and a half hour, three hour show? Amazing. And to be fair, I generally, you know, I listen to it. I mean, the great thing with YouTube is you can speed it up now, of course, which is great for podcasts and things. Really. If you have a podcast app, I use Pocket Cast. I imagine they're all sort of similar. Yeah. You can eliminate all the gaps and speed it up. You can listen to what was a 40-minute conversation in about 25 minutes without yes. losing any of the sort of coherence. You know, the, the, the brain's ability to process it yeah. doesn't go. You know, you can't do that with TV shows. And I think a lot of, like, semi-factual TV programming has, if anything, gone in the other direction. I remember yeah. when BBC Horizon programmes used to be, you know, quite educational. Now it's basically lots of long shots of the sun rising over a fucking particle accelerator. Yeah. Or something. You just go, come on, you know, where's some information? Yeah. Anyway, the, um, so Radio 4 Comedy, you know, benefits from that. And you've got, a, you've got an audience who will sit there and they will pay attention. And hopefully now, five series in, I felt... We've gathered enough momentum. We've we've gathered, you know, accrued enough credibility. You know, people will sit with it. So far, all the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. But I suppose people wouldn't, you know, tell me to my face that they'd found it boring. But uh, you know, people have gone out of their way to say we've found that really interesting, and I did learn something. You know, yeah. And you're right. It, it's easy for me to take for granted that people know who Adam Smith was. You know, beyond being on a twenty pound note, but it, actually, when, it's not the case. There's a lot of things. I mean, actually, the audience here at Comedy Unleashed they're, they're quite politically literate, so that in, in that sense, it is quite good. You yeah. Know? But, yeah. But of course, they are unusual. I mean, I haven't been on yet, but I've just watched the first half hour and um, it's very unusual. You know, they're quite mature for a start. You know, I don't mean like old, but there are <laughs> plenty of people in their 30s, at least a lot of Central mm. Lyman comedy nights now, more late, late teens, early 20s. You yeah. know, they are all there. A lot of them are Londoners, which I think is healthy without wishing to sort of sound controversial about it. Go to the comedy store, at least half the audience are tourists, really, and yeah, many of them yeah. from overseas. And they're, they're kind of in the way that people go to Vegas or something. You know, yeah. they're just to see the spectacle, they're not invested in the night in the same exactly, way that, yeah, you know yeah. it's a bit of a local club it's it's great you know that's that is really good to feel that you can you can probably uh, you know people's attention spans will, will stick with and it. it's nice that we get some people coming back again and again and you know that's yeah that's the idea and we do try and get a range of different stuff i'll be honest back, with you when i first saw the title like unleashed mm. and like you can say anything you know there is that kind of ah rick mail i'm mad me kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, think, yeah. oh god is this really necessary <laughs> is it self-indulgent nonsense but Overwhelmingly, you know, I felt that it is, it's actually de- demonstrated that it is necessary and it is worthwhile. And also, actually, even in the sort of last six months, increasing amount of, I don't know, just like little, it's always the death of a thousand cuts, isn't I know it? But mean. little, yeah, yeah. little impinging you know, on the liberties, you can't say that, you're cancelled here, you're. And it is small things. It's not like, I mean, I I keep getting accused of saying, oh, you're going around saying you can't say anything anymore, which is not a phrase I've ever used apart from just now to you. But but, I mean, like, yeah. That's Stuart Lee thing, isn't it? Oh, you can't, you you can't even say you're British anymore. So there was some sort of satire. I don't think anyone actually says that. No, (laughs) no, it's nonsense. It's that that way of that kind of straw manning of things is very irritating because there is a Puritan drift, you know, at the moment, and it's it's wrong. So one of the questions I always get asked is, like, what do you think of the state of satire? This is like a really standard question. I don't yeah. know why, but do you have an answer? Because I really hate answering that question, so I was wondering if you could give me an answer I could use. I do think certain gatekeepers have... have. I mean, you know, the long march through the institutions might be exaggerated, but it does feel to me like the left have managed to get a firmer grip on right. the gates... Obviously, some people are producing this stuff, but you are like 10 times more likely to get suspended from Twitter, for instance, yes. for, for crossing a line in that direction, you yeah. know, where there's plenty of people 
who like go, God, I hate white people, you know, and next minute they're, they're hired to the editorial board of the New York Times, you know. But I mean, that's a literal example, as I'm sure you know, you know. And that is true, but then, the, the, but then if the people in, in power have redefined what racism means, it doesn't, mm. it, it, it's, uh, what is it they say? It's, it's, you can't, uh, it's, a, it's it prejudice, has power. prejudice, prejudice plus power. It's plus institutionalised power. That's yeah, it, that's exactly, it. that's right. So, you know, and this is an evolving question, but mm. um, I don't, I think satire is, you know, it, the thing about satire is it's like weeds. It will burst out through any tiny crack in the concrete. You know, you just have to keep an eye open for where it's emerging right now. And yeah. just at that moment when you start to lose confidence and faith that, you know, the MASH report is capable of, of presenting a balanced, you know, uh, a take on a certain scandal, you know, it will it will suddenly emerge from somewhere else, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Norcott is doing a good job, bless him, of, you know, <laughs> attempting to balance things, but he is quite clearly the token. They've almost made it explicit how token they ha- no, he is. No, they really they, have, you know? haven't yeah. they? But that's weird to me because, I mean, often comedians deny to me. They say there's no there's no left-wing bias in comedy. There's no... I remember but- I was asked on to the, the Now show for their Brexit special on the Sunday before the vote, mm-hmm. and I was... It was a guy called Ed Morris, lovely guy, who's a radio producer who was involved in it. I don't think he was the producer. Might be wrong. Anyway, he said, "Will you come on and debate with Lucy Porter about pro or against Brexit?" Right. And so, and I said, "Which one do you want me to do?" Because I was really, I was genuinely neutral. I hadn't been tweeting or campaigning either way. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd had conversations with my dad, who was a leaver, and when I sort of understood his his concerns about the you know, creeping, you know, drift towards political unity. And then I had conversations with other people saying it does work as, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, I said, yeah, fine. So I drew up like four, there were four questions and I I wrote four responses, you know, it would be like, why, you know, what have you got against Europe? And I said, I've got nothing against Europe. I just, I just distrust, you know, an unnecessary tier of management and my distrust of it. And that comes from my days running the sixth form block when I was at school, you know, <laughs> because I know how much I was creaming off from the profits of the pool table. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like this. Anyway, I went along and did that debate with Lucy. And that was in front of a Radio 4 audience at the Radio Theatre. And I was literally the only pro-Brexit voice on that night and I wasn't even sincerely pro-Brexit myself I'd just written them as comic conceits I won the debate massively. The audience <laughs> was so desperate and relieved to hear a pro-Brexit voice That's that it. night, you know, even though it was all tongue-in-cheek. I mean, my final point was, you know, that um, I wanted us to leave Europe because I had my father, who I was very fond of, keen aviation enthusiast and one of his great laments was that this country only properly invests in the aviation industry when there's a war in the offing during the build-up to the second world war we've created the spitfire and the mosquito and the um, hurricane and so on but the investment just leaks out afterwards we always have the innovators we always have the technology and then it goes away to america in order to get built and developed only during a war and ideally a war with germany so <laughs> so as long as we're inside the eu that just isn't possible but if we pull out there's just great. the possibility of a war you know it was on that level of nonsense yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's call it nonsense but anyway you know four days later we vote to leave and i did wonder whether oh my I god you, did i take the balance, yeah, you, you, know? you definitely swung it you definitely swung it am that. i taking the blame but <laughs> it was just an extraordinary sense of, you have no one there's no other and balance the, at all or marcus Brigstock and, and the audiences Steve are relieved Pan, you know, i think yeah, e- even are. if they have a particular point of view Absolutely. you know they, they just want to hear yeah the different sides i, I think people are bored with not being surprised only strong view on Brexit is that it is taking far too long to achieve a result. It is taking longer to detach politically from Europe than it did geologically. I think that's a... (laughs) There is no fucking excuse for that, is there?
We could at least at this point surely switch to a news medium more appropriate than the 24-hour news cycle to, to keep us up. There may be a fucking tapestry or something. You could just, with a, a webcam, you could just log on and see how the tapestry was coming on. Oh, look, they finished Michelle Barnier's tie. been very divisive. It has revealed divisions and possibly inflamed them, but one of the divisions that I don't like is revealed and the inflammation of is the division between young and old. This is one that particularly begins to rile me, because I'm 54 years of age and I can begin to feel the first little creaks in the bones and the first little little lacunae in the mental processes that indicate I'm, I'm entering a later stage of life. And it's a fucking, it's no country for old men, Brexit, is it? Because you're despised. I mean, this is a country, we, we are a country, basically, and most of Western civilization is, that doesn't have a very healthy attitude with ageing and with death. We don't have a very attitude, we don't have a very switched-on attitude to mortality, do we? I have wondered whether, as a comedian, it is my responsibility to attack these taboos. I, I've wondered whether I should do a show about the death of my father and the impact that, obviously, the reflections at such an occasion will, uh, will cause in a... In a in a man confronting his own mortality in his, in his late middle age. The truth is, I think it would make a perfectly valid subject matter for a stand-up comedy show. I wouldn't shy away from it. But every time I sit down to try and write jokes about the death of my father, I find I'm unable to do so without that event actually having taken place. It's a... Uh, it's a failure of imagination more than anything else. Should at least be able to see that far into the future, shouldn't I? He's 89 years old. I mean, it's hardly unconscionable, but he is alive. He is, uh, he's on his feet. He's, he has his marbles, though, bless him. And he follows my career, and he will soon. So there's no point in uh... <laughs> I actually have a great deal of time for the old man. He's, um, he is 89, and he's what you would expect, I suppose, from a lot of men of that age. He's, uh, they live out in rural Norfolk. My parents, both still together, they celebrated their 60th anniversary recently. I'm very proud of that. I'm very grateful to them for providing that stability for me and I'm grateful to be honest that they're still there to talk to get a bit of perspective on things I enjoy that regular phone call it's the one conversation I have on a weekly basis where I feel like I'm the liberal that's nice for me you know? <laughs> I'm the one going well hang on dad they're not all like that <laughs> so that's well I enjoy it he was blamed, my dad, for Brexit, and there is a, a large and trenchant body of people of opinion in this country, all based on facts, of course. It was all statistical analysis of the demographics that lay beneath the, the Brexit divide, and it was discerned that a particular demographic was largely responsible for Brexit, namely old people, retired people, living in rural Britain, away from the realities of the modern urban, sophisticated urban economy, uh, old white men, basically, and principally the uneducated, by which they mean no university degree, no tertiary education. These people much more likely to vote for Brexit, it seems, statistically. Now, my father does fall very neatly into that category. He is uneducated. He would admit it himself if he understood the question. But... <laughs> He's not sick, he's not ignorant, he's uneducated because he left school in 1944. It wasn't a given then that if you could stand up straight and not piss your trousers in front of three fucking non-entities at Warwick University for ten minutes and were granted the opportunity to read media studies and emerged three years later, 50 grand in debt, less employable than you were when you went in. That wasn't considered a good starting life.
He's read a newspaper most of the days of his life, and he's kept a fairly close eye on the... He was, he was an enthusiastic Remainer back in 1975. He voted to stay within the... I think it was still called the European Chess and Bridge Association. Or something like that. <laughs> it's been a bit of mission creep since then, and he didn't like it. for us as a family on this evening of course it feels like I probably would get away with it but luckily generally speaking in terms of my career my mother rendered the family Brexit neutral she is a Remainer uh, she, and she is educated she got an open university degree in her 50s so maybe there's some correlation I don't know but I don't think that's why she voted Remain I don't think she voted Remain because she's read Jane Austen and George Eliot I think she voted Remain because she has a deep-seated loathing of Boris Johnson and it really is that simple it's a very visceral dislike he comes on the telly, she starts hissing like a fucking cat. <laughs> she doesn't trust him. I don't think it's the politics, because the only other person she's ever hated that much was Arthur Scargill, so I think it's the hair. <laughs> I don't think she trusts men with an unruly mop <laughs> and political ambitions, and I can see that. I can see that it's affected, and I have some sympathy with that view. She really does, despite... Honestly, it wouldn't surprise me next time I see her, she's wearing a fucking burqa, just to spite Johnson. That would be surprising. <laughs> Which would amuse my father, because he's always complaining it's a long walk to the post box. So it'd be a bit of an old boy, I don't know how that would play out. But, uh... <laughs> Cause a bit of a <laughs> scandal in the village. <laughs> I have respect for them, and what I really respect about my parents is that, and that generation generally, they take their democratic, democratic responsibilities very seriously. They don't go on marches, they don't wear stupid t-shirts to the pub, claiming that they fucking get out and vote though when it counts this is what matters getting your vote in they both went out they both had mobility issues they got on the bus on that June morning three years ago went to the polling station cast their votes knowing that their votes would cancel each other out they were aware of that <laughs> they'd had that conversation on a nightly basis on that they knew they had failed to persuade the other one I don't know if they were just hoping they'd have a heart attack on the bus or something <laughs> Do not resuscitate until 10.01pm. <laughs> the thing is, with left and right, that's one thing, but leave and remain has brought it into much starker yeah. focus because... The Leavers are basically the social conservatives, aren't they? That's the thing. And that's the quarter that's been ignored. You know, you've had the sort of, you can talk about fiscal, for want of a better word, you know, left or right, you mm -hmm. know, redistribute taxes, whatever. But the social, the top left-hand corner of the campus are the, yes. are the ones who just felt they weren't seeing their views, like, even engaged with, you know, just outright mocked as, as absurd and, and futile and, and facile and clown-like, yeah. you know, for so many years. I think they took the opportunity to, to you know, with the, with the Brexit vote, to just, you know, chuck a brick through the through the, through the stained glass window. To, and to what extent do you think class was an issue? I mean, there, there's a, a feeling of which there's a kind of weird alliance between the very rich and the working yeah, class, yeah. you know. And well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I do think, yeah, class, is, class evolves again, but it is still a factor in Britain, and obviously it still is in America, despite the fact that they claim not to be class-ridden, you know. Mm -hmm. they're, they're more racially divided than they are class-divided, I suppose, and so that grabs the headlines. But we have a problem in this country, which is that there has been, and I think it's quite a recent thing, and it is, again, it's like the coastal elites. We are starting to get that now, that mm -hmm. kind of sense that there are certain people, technocratic 
you know, individuals who understand more complex and sophisticated ideas of how things should be run. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's wrong. There's a guy on Twitter, uh, Christian Nemitz, who made a very good point recently that essentially Hong Kong, um, up until the, the Chinese handover, was run essentially by a technocrat, a Scottish econo- yeah. economist. I can't remember his, can never remember his name. He ran an amazingly successful economy and society. I mean, I wouldn't but you want can't to guarantee there. you'll get the right technocrat. No, you know? no, exactly. That was the thing. But he was essentially a libertarian technocrat. Right. His thing was, I don't want reams and reams of statistical analysis of the economy because you will expect me then to intervene in this way or that way. Just let it be. It's working. Yeah. That he was that kind of technocrat. You know what I mean? But my, I my view with Brexit is it, it, it may or may not work, it may or may not be a bump, but I look back to all the other things that have been similar in history, like, for instance, Martin Luther, you know, the break with Rome there in Germany, you know, the Thirty Years' War, a catastrophe for Europe, you know, an outbreak with Rome under Henry VIII. None of those things, they were all basically peasant interventions, essentially, Pe- you know, people rising up against their, their betters, you know, for one of well, even the Even the English Reformation? Well, I think so, yeah. Just if it's seen on a world scale, yeah, yeah. Henry VIII's break from Rome, he, that was seen as a the British vulgar, you know, a vulgar kind of, you know, that, that, that's how the, the Catholic Church saw it. They, right. didn't, they didn't see us as equals at that point. They, they saw us entirely as this kind of race of, you know, island, you know, Atlantic barbarians. Not without cause, perhaps. No, absolutely. Well, the, the Spanish and the, you know, and prior to that, the Holy Roman Empire were much more splendid and sophisticated. I mean, they were essentially, you know, much more. Um, and that continued even into the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century. It wasn't a, you know, a, a coincidence that uh, Austrian Germany had Beethoven and Mozart. You know, and we didn't. We did you know, we have? In music, we didn't. I mean, we had great painters. What I'm not yeah. saying was entirely uncultivated, but there's a certain amount of sort of <laughs> vulgarity at the heart of the British people. You know, but would you really want to go back and turn back the clock and say no? We should have stuck with Rome. We should have remained. Well, I'm a Catholic, uh, so yeah, hundred percent. Well, you okay? Yeah. You're a bit. Because I'm going to get of course, the um, some of the uh, most traditional and, in a funny way, sort of Brexity people on Twitter are. I mean, the trad Catholic thing is yeah, coming no, that's back. Right. Isn't it? it is right. I've noticed that. <laughs> it's weird what people so, make alliances. So, with. where do you find yourself politically? If you were to describe yourself politically, do you have an allegiance? No, I really don't have an allegiance. I genuinely am interested in in understanding different arguments i see certain names and theories sort of emerge mainly on twitter which is where i spend far too much time and i try and educate myself about them for instance recently i did uh, read up on somebody who really is quite right wing a guy called carl schmidt who was a german jurist and sort of political philosopher of the, roughly the 20th century who was a member of the Nazi party, you know, although he was he was not entirely in favour of it, but he wasn't, he didn't kind of like, you know, get yeah. exiled from it or whatever. But he was, he wasn't ever sort of put through Nuremberg or whatever, and he continued to function afterwards as well. And, and the Americans uh, were, were quite interested in what he had to say. But he had sort of deep, you know, intellectual underpinnings of nationalism and that right. kind of thing. You know, it's worth understanding what those are because of it's course. very easy to just dismiss nationalism as just sort of brute force, just knuckle dragging ignorance. You know? Yes. Whereas, in fact, it's useful to know. But equally, I am very interested in Georgism, for instance, which is the land value tax, you know, where you just say income tax is a suffocating, oppressive weight on the burden of innovation and, 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 and energy and inter- enterprise. Whereas instead, if you just tax the value, the, the, the rateable value of land, it naturally disperses the burden across those who can afford to pay it through no 
credit of their own. It's not your own virtue that, that you live in, in, in a, a part of London that's become extraordinarily desirable. So, you know, that, I mean, that, I mean, that's considered quite a left-wing proposition. Are you saying you go through just, Twitter for all this? This is where you... Well, I, I encounter a lot of people who discuss these things yeah, and then course, I go, and that's why I sort of say to them, well, what should I read? You know, yeah. what, what would be an interesting... What would yeah, be this sounds like a good way to use Twitter rather than just insult people. I do also, you know, have furious rounds with people <laughs> about whether it should be Kenneth Williams who plays Hannibal Lecter in, in the remake of the Ealing comedy Did version you? of that was today's one. It wasn't furious, no, it was very good-hearted. But <laughs> we were uh, we were discussing if they made an Ealing comedy version of a Silence of the Lambs, and as of course Kenneth Williams is yeah a, a British comedy movie, like a carry-on yeah. Ealing comedy. You know, I was thinking <laughs> I thought I said Alec Guinness because he has that kind of you know he can do sinister brilliantly. You know, it's like in the Lady Killers, but uh, Charles Hawtrey. Hawtrey would be. I mean, it's a it's a sort of one joke. No, it isn't it? Although, yeah. if you watch Hawtrey and the Carry-Ons, he's always acting. You know, he's never off. Yeah. You know, no, he's always, like, true. right in the background. He's always really... Well, very, very damaged individual by all accounts. Well, all of them. Pleasant <laughs> man. <I> think, yeah. <laughs> that, was so, of... that was such a generation, wasn't it? Extraordinary. But uh, we all agree that Bernard Breslau made an amazing... What was he named? The the, uh, the one who was had kept, kept him in the in the, in the the hole in the ground. The, 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 Billy, the... Um, he was named after the cowboy, wasn't he? I can't remember what his oh, name was. Oh, wait. One of the, cow- the carry-on films. With yeah, Bernard, Bernard Breslau is the massive tall guy. But yes, in, yes, in yes. Silence of the Lambs, there's the... the uh, oh, yes, uh, Buffalo it, Bill. Buffalo Bill, exactly, yes. So oh, Breslau plays that Bernard in drag. Breslau as Buffalo Bill. Yeah, yeah, but there's a picture of him in drag, which is which this guy sent me to... Convert, and I was like, yeah, actually, that is terrifying. Well, you know what? You he know bre- where he touches, his, touches himself in between his, his thighs, Bernard yeah. Breslau, although I did... I, I, Bernard Breslau did play the Cyclops in Kroll, so he's got form of being... Did he? He's got more of a range than people give him credit for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> range. And quite a wingspan as well. <laughs> I don't know that I've seen Kroll. I can never remember. Oh, it's one of those old 80s fantasies. Yeah, that... yeah. I did see one with a Cyclops in, so it must have been that one. Yeah, is that where he can foresee his own death? That's isn't it? it. Yeah, that's, that's Breslau. Yeah. You can't really tell because he's got the makeup Breslau? on. Wow. Breslau, yeah. Massive. Unless I've got it completely wrong. Anyway, Simon, on that note, on, <laughs> <laughs> on the on the, the note of tucking in a penis. And but yes, use, use Twitter to engage yeah. with unusual perspectives and inter- I've I've talked to some left wing and right wing. Americans in particular, there's some there's some probably switched on intelligent people on the right yeah. that will make you realise it is, you know, it's it's not idiotic. That's, that is actually genuinely good advice to thank end the, the podcast with. So thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to your set. Yeah, it's gonna be a massive disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> so tits and bums, am I right? <laughs> Thanks, Simon. Right, that's it for now. Check out the Comedy Unleashed YouTube channel or Facebook page. We're also on Twitter. And if you'd like to see the full lineups for future gigs, check out comedyunleashed.co.uk. We hold gigs on the second Tuesday of every month, and it would be great to see you there. Lastly, don't forget to click on the subscribe button for the Comedy Unleashed podcast. And then as we drop new interviews with comedians as they come off stage or about to go on stage, uh, then they will drop into your podcast app. Lovely. See you next time.